0: What makes a strong research team and what makes it last? Dr. Neil Charnish joined a research team in 1999, and that team has been continuously funded for 20 years and counting. On today's episode, Neil will share his perspective on team formation and team longevity. He'll also share how games and happy accidents led him to the field of gerund technology and to interdisciplinary research. I'm Evangeline Coker and you're listening to Journeys in Research. Journeys in Research is a podcast conceived by FSU's Office of Research Development as an on-the-go resource for faculty. In each episode, we'll hear from an FSU faculty member who will share stories from their research journey, and through that shared experience, help us understand the world of research beyond the college or departmental level. So no matter what field of study our guests come from, their journeys can relate to where we are today. Dr. Neil Charnis is the William G. Chase Professor of Psychology at FSU. He received his PhD in psychology from Carnegie Mellon University in 1974. Charness is the Director of the Institute for Successful Longevity and the Associate Director for the University Transportation Center. He is one of the founding members of the longstanding multidisciplinary research team, CREATE. All right, well, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Happy to be here.
0: So, you've been deeply involved in the research of aging since the 1970s. You've garnered multiple grants and journal article publications on that topic, and it's led you to where you are now as the director of the Institute for Successful Longevity. Now, you've said before that through your research pursuits, you eventually settled into Geron technology research. Would you talk a bit about that moment you chose to change your focus?
1: I'll talk about it, I guess, coming into aging first because that almost preceded the shift over to Geron technology. Yeah. I think it's probably fair to say that aging chose me rather than I chose it. Yeah. Um, like many other things in my in my life, there were kind of happy accidents. And I was doing work on um, expertise, Um, in particular expertise in chess was my doctoral dissertation topic. And so when I got out as a young assistant professor, I decided uh, I'd like to kind of generalize the findings that we were getting to a different domain. And so I picked another one of my hobbies besides chess, that was bridge playing. And uh, rather than having young college undergraduates as my research participants, uh, I was picking people from the community who were bridge players. And some of those people were younger. Some of those people were middle-aged. Some of those people were older. And when I did kind of the usual replicas of some of the uh, perception, memory, problem-solving tasks that I'd used initially in the area of chess skill, I found kind of to my surprise that uh, there were age effects in the data because now I had a a, a much larger uh, kind of span of age represented with a community sample compared with a young college undergraduate sample. And what really piqued my curiosity and kind of moved me into the field of aging was discovering that both age and skill level were significant predictors of performance on these tasks. And it was, Trying to uncover or at least uh, understand better the mystery of how older adults who you could demonstrate had much much poorer memory performance Mm -hmm. could perform as well as they did on problem solving in bridge in this case when all the theory at that point in time was suggesting that memory and memory retrieval processes were critical to expert performance and so here i have these skilled older adults performing at a very high level. Their memories were not performing at the level of, say, their younger counterparts. And so how did they compensate? What were the mechanisms they used to be able to overcome what we thought were uh, the necessary memory uh, abilities uh, to be able to perform in high levels? Aging chose me at that point as a, yeah. as a field. The nice thing about chess, and to some extent bridge, is that it's relatively invariant. So the rules for chess have been relatively tournament chess, we'll say. It's been invariant in terms of the rules, which means that different groups, as they're growing up and come in contact with and acquire a skill, kind of acquired it in the same way. That's changed now a little bit with computers and chess databases, chess playing programs. It's it's one of the reasons that younger players are becoming so good so quickly is that they have the advantages of, of technology. So things have changed with respect to skill acquisition in chess. At the time I was studying it, that wasn't the case. People mm-hmm. learned the hard way by playing games themselves, by reading the books out there. And the same is true for, for bridge, uh, duplicate bridge or contract bridge. Rules have been pretty stable since uh, modern bridge evolved out of games like WIST, for instance. And so there were good domains to look at aging processes where you didn't have to be worried that if you did a cross-sectional study, where I study, say, you as a young bridge player, me as an older bridge player, I don't have to be worried that there's something about when we were introduced to bridge that -hmm. made it different in some way. So those were ideal domains, you know, what some people have called Drosophila, fruit flies for studying, uh, in this case, expert performance.
0: So, I bet now with technology moving forward like it has been, that working on geron technology is, it, it sounds like it's ever shifting, that there's always a new. Um, there are always new
1: technologies available to study. Yeah. That, I mean, that's both a boon and a bane. Yeah. Because <laughs> really, if you're doing the sorts of things that, that we try to do in, in our groups, our research groups, you're hoping you can at least provide recommendations that aren't going to be out of date tomorrow. Yeah. And so we have to focus at the level of principles of geron technology. What are good design principles that would apply no matter what the technology is, no matter what the training uh, requirements are for your particular piece of technology? Those things will stay relatively constant because humans change very, very slowly. Changes in our cognitive, our perceptual, our psychomotor abilities are relatively slow they do happen. I mean, there's a, a well-known phenomena that our cognition on average has been improving over at least last couple of generations, uh, probably from educational processes, but we don't mm. know the whole answer to that. Um, but technology changes like, I'm not sure weekly is the right term, but but certainly um, you know, every few months something new comes out that people could be interacting with. I
0: wanted to shift and talk a bit about um, your time with the CREATE team.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so in 1999, you joined the CREATE team as a co-PI, and that's the Center for Research and Education on Aging and Technology Enhancement. And you have pointed to that team as probably the most critical influence in your developing skills in gerund technology. So how did that influence you? How did CREATE influence you?
1: Well, um, the, the team that I joined up at the time consisted of Sarah Saja and Joe Sherrett, then at University of Miami, and it was Dan Fisk and Wendy Rogers, then at uh, Georgia Institute of Technology. And they had all had uh, formal training, unlike me, in both aging, but more specifically in human factors engineering. And the field of human factors was relatively new to me, uh, I got into it again by accident. I've been doing work on age and technology and that kind of put me in the area of trying to understand both you know, how do you design technology to be effective with older adults, but also more importantly, what are good training techniques for getting older learners to learn to use technology? So I kind of edged into that field a little bit and then I had an opportunity uh, as I was going away on sabbatical, to write a chapter in a a very prestigious outlet, The Handbook of the Psychology of Aging. And I was given the topic of human factors. So I started to learn a little bit about that on my own. But teaming up with people who had already been well-trained, had been doing research in this area for quite a while, gave me the opportunity to learn from my peers. So I have a real debt to them for helping kind of educate me on the fly in a field I had never studied. Of course, Mm. I've never studied aging either. So I tend to get into these things, as I said before, kind of happy accidents. And then have to kind of educate myself a little bit. But I mean, that's one of the advantages of being an academic. You have a Mm. great deal of freedom to pursue your discipline or new disciplines, as the case may be, uh, in your spare time and your free time and and learn about new things. But really short circuits things, if you have friends around you, who can tell you, this is the way we do this, or here's a technique, just use this uh, as a way to to go about trying to solve a particular problem in an area. So I kind of picked up, almost by osmosis, a lot of the techniques and a lot of the methodologies. And uh, one of the things we did over Create was Evolve, because we've been together for over 20 years. You're not going to get refunded for doing the exact same thing all the time. So we had to find kind of new tasks, new domains, new challenges over the more than 20 years we've been together. We've been funded four times, but over the years, we've had to branch out and do new things. And it's kind of like a risky shift phenomenon. If you're in a group, you tend to probably take more risks than you would as an individual. Mm. So we kind of egg each other on to do more new things, more challenging things. And so one of the things we've, we've been able to do is push each other to, to branch out, to expand. Uh, we got involved, for instance, in the clinical trial methodology. So we ran our first clinical trial, I think in CREATE 3. So I learned about clinical trial methodology. So that's an example of how a team can kind of influence its, its teammate members.
0: So you said you consider the CREATE Teams dynamic as more like a family than a team? Could you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah. Well, when you've been together with someone for that length of time, that's longer than many marriages last, <laughs> I have to admit. Now, our, our team has changed over the years. So Dan Fisk, one of the originals, retired. I brought in uh, Katinka Dykstra, who is a faculty member here at Florida State, to help me on Create2. She left with her husband to go back to the Netherlands at one point, and so lost her as a, as a teammate here. Uh, but then Wally Boot came here as a postdoc from Kramer's lab at UIUC and I got him involved even before he showed up at FSU we were rewriting we were writing the new Create3 grant and I said here's here's something where you could provide an interesting piece of the puzzle because he was doing uh, work on uh, on video games Mm. um, and we were thinking of uh, kind of moving into that area a little bit so the team has been fairly constant you know I would say today uh, myself I've been one of the originals Sarasaja, Joe Sherrod are still originals on the team. Uh, Wendy Rogers is still an original. Wally's not quite the new kid on the block, but but uh, has been with us through uh, three grant applications now, I guess, and, and been, been working together now for over 10 years. And so uh, we meet at conferences to um, discuss our projects. We have uh, today, of course, it's Not unusual. We have a a weekly Zoom meeting on each of the projects we're involved on. We've got the two, the Create and the the Nidler projects, where we meet weekly. Uh, We also tend to try to have a retreat once a year, where we go away. Usually, it's for book writing purposes. We just published a Wally Boot was the first author on a co-authored book that came out in uh, late twenty twenty so we would meet together to work on our book chapters on our writing together we meet obviously for grant application processes Um, but obviously we've socialized a lot together Uh, you know at at this point in time we know each other's life stories you know to keep a team together you've got to have kind of complementary skills and Mm. you have to have people who are kind of peacemakers when tensions get high people who are a little calmer People who are a little more excitable and enthusiastic and kind of drive you forward. And I think it's been kind of a a good complementary set of of temperaments, of abilities, of knowledge areas that have Mm -hmm. kind of kept us uh, working together effectively. And of course, by being together, we go to to have dinners together at the meetings we're at. uh, So we stay in touch with each other that way. We, We really are a family in that sense at this point.
0: I had wanted to ask before you started talking about that. Okay, what well, this is an impressive track record. How how do you keep a team like this going? And I feel like you're giving us the building blocks for making a long lasting team. Talking about meeting a lot, having those social moments, uh, having people with complementary work styles and, and and personalities that can egg you on versus being a peacemaker, that kind of thing.
1: Exactly. I mean, like any, we we run into uh, disagreements like any other. You know, sort of. Uh, Close knit group or, or mm. family, um, but we, we can resolve them, um, and we're we're pretty good at uh, at playing appropriate roles to make sure that that things that irritate somebody you know get resolved in in satisfactory ways. Or uh, when problems arise, we can talk about it. We, we're probably one of the longest lasting teams I can think of in science. Uh, having been together this this length of time, because people's interests change over time. I'm a good mm-hmm. example of that. I started out in pure expertise research. and I uh, came here to Florida State to work with uh, my late colleague, Anders Ericsson, uh, in terms of the new group he was forming, dealing with expertise. But I kind of drifted off a little bit more into expertise and aging,
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: aging became a primary focus, gerund technology became a more uh, primary focus. And so uh, we did, in our, in our last few years, we haven't done a lot of collaborating. Uh, Anders and I did not. Um, you know, we worked together with students and all the rest of it, but my interests changed. Same is true, I think, within the CREATE team in terms of where some of our primary interests are. Like everything else, all good things come to an end. I'm not sure our team will, will last forever. Um, hope it goes on for a, a while yet. As long as we can continue to be productive together, as long as we feel that we're making you know we're all holding up our end because it's as you know it's a difficult process going for these large scale in our case po1 program project grants Mm. they're very time consuming to write very difficult to write they're even more time consuming and difficult to carry through over the five-year period that you you defined and so it's it's you know life as a researcher is pretty stressful and uh, unless you really, really like, A, what you're working on, that is the science, and B, the people you're working with, mm. it can be too much. And, uh, you know, you, you may shift to something different.
0: Yeah, and you've gone on, while also keeping the CREATE team going, you've helped build other research teams, too, at, at the university, Uh, Could you tell me a bit about how you build research teams today and its connection with with your position with the Institute for Successful Longevity?
1: There are kind of two ways you can build a team. One of them is sort of a top-down one. This is what you might see in an organization. A new project comes up. The manager says, this engineer, this engineer, this designer, this other. I'm picking a technology example. I want you to work together and put together a music player, an MP3 player. Let's invent that. And so somebody in an authority position says, here's what we're going to work on uh, as a company or, you know, as a, as a division within a company. And here are the people I'm going to need to be able to carry this out, I hope, successfully. Mm. So that's what I call top-down selection. That's not the usual model in academia in academia when it comes to research and research teams, they tend to develop a little more organically. You know, the CREATE team is kind of a good example of that. It grew out of really um, an initiative that started as a top-down initiative. The president of University of Miami and Florida State University at one particular point in time said, hey, why don't we see if we can get our universities to collaborate on research? And at the time, I had been, I think I did a review for Sarah Saja, she and I have been working on similar age and technology types of projects over the years. And so I, I contacted her, I think I had sent her an email or something and said, hey, there's this initiative to get our two universities working more closely. Uh, are there any projects you think we could collaborate on? Turns out at that particular point in time, she and Joe Sharot were trying to renew a Roybal center that was an age and work center. And so she said, yeah, we're, we're trying to write up this next grant proposal. You work in this area, I, you know, how about um, joining this team? So we put in a proposal, didn't succeed, but then uh, I think it was Robin Burr at National Institute on Aging suggested, well, why don't you get in touch with Dan Fisk and Wendy Rogers? They're also human factors researchers working on aging and put in for a different mechanism the PL1, a program project grant. So that's how the create team was born. So it was sort of a little bit of top-down, but mainly bottom-up. Sarah and I happen to be, and Joe, working on similar age and work issues at that point in time. And so a bottom-up is a more organic process. Researchers kind of find each other. I work kind of, I would say, as director of an institute that's meant to be uh, an interdisciplinary or a multidisciplinary institute. Aging's kind of the poster child for multidisciplinarity to solve the challenges of aging really takes an interdisciplinary team. You've got to have people who know the biology of aging, uh, social science, sociology, psychology of aging, motor performance. I mean, you name it. Everybody has a, has a little piece of the puzzle that they can provide. And so my goal is in particular to try to form interdisciplinary teams if possible. And in fact, we have a mechanism at the Institute. that's called our planning grant uh, program where people can apply. And the way I set that up is it has to be not one person applying, but at least two people from two different uh, research areas, disciplines. Has to be a multidisciplinary application. I use that as a way to try to coax people to get together. But I also try to provide opportunities. So I send out, for instance, the Office of Research sends often sends me information when they hear about aging uh, related uh, uh, research opportunities uh federal notices of uh grant opportunities and i send them out to a listserv we have maybe about 90 institute affiliates and then if i say okay if anybody's interested in this get back to us and if at least two of you indicate interest we'll put together a meeting to try to see if we can move this forward in some cases i've tried to do more of a top down where i've said okay here's the new grant application we had a number of people who are interested and now Let's have a meeting and let's discuss what are the opportunities, what are your interests and so on. And sometimes what that does is doesn't lead to a specific grant proposal. People Mm -hmm. are too busy. They have other things, you know, academics have lots of competing uh, activities and interests that they have to manage. We've had examples where we got together. I think there was one on resilience and it didn't work out, but two of the people started talking to each other and applied and got a different grant. It's sort of like um, the collaborative collisions that the Office of Research has organized over time to try to bring researchers together. But we try to do a little of that as well. We have a brown bag series. Unfortunately, it's virtual now. It's not like I can gather people in the room and then afterwards there's a chance for people to chit chat and talk about their own research or talk to the speaker that day to say, hey, I've got an interest in this and so on. So hybrid model is kind of the way in which I've been trying to go about things.
0: So are there other elements that you look for in potential PIs or co-PIs uh, beyond just that they're in a different department, that that multidisciplinary element?
1: Sure. I mean, you're looking for responsible people, obviously. So <laughs> one of the things I, I, I really look for are, you know, do people do things in a timely way? When you're applying for a grant, it's got a deadline and you can't be held up if someone's writing a section, they don't get it in on time or don't get it at all. So I'm looking for things like, are people responsive? Are they responsive to emails? We all know people will send an email to, won't hear back, have to send a second, maybe a third email to get them to respond. Okay, that's not mm-hmm. the sort of person I want on a grantee. So high conscientiousness is something I'm looking for, for members of a team I want to work with. Usually that's a mix of experienced researchers. We've already got the presence in the field where they're going to be trusted by the reviewers to know what to do with money, but also young faculty are far more open to doing new things than, we'll say, a high, you know, well-established researcher. Mm. It's already got a research area, well-defined, well honed. They've got a smooth running laboratory. Why would I take time away from something that's working like a well-oiled machine Mm. on a flyer on this new project? Yeah. And so I find young faculty a little more open in general to doing something a little different from what they've been trained to do. Mm. So uh, I'm, I'm often looking for a mix in a team because you know young faculty are eventually going to be old faculty like me. And uh, so, but they need the experience, the opportunity to work in a team environment, particularly on a large scale project, before they're going to have the confidence that say, as they move into the more mid, mid part of their career, that they could in fact lead a multidisciplinary team themselves. Because mm-hmm. you probably don't start off as an assistant professor saying, OK, let's do this great multidisciplinary project. I mean, some do. It's becoming more common now mm. for people to, to work with people outside of their specific uh, area or even discipline in some mm-hmm. cases. So we're, we're moving more towards, and, and granting agencies are kind of leading the charge here mm. by providing more funds for multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary uh, grant opportunities. And, um, but, you know, when I was trained as a young faculty member, it was, you know, the lone wolf model is sort of what we call it. It's yeah. really the model. You go in, you set up your own lab, you have your own graduate students, and you do your own thing. Mm-hmm. And that's shifting now because the problems we're dealing with tend to be more uh, open to interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approaches mm. to solve really important societal problems. Aging is a, is a good example of the sorts of challenges that we face. Um, but yeah, so that, those are the sorts of things I'm looking for. I'm looking for people and people who are fun to be with. I hate to say that. Yeah. That's <laughs> important too. That really is. So you're going to be spending a lot of your life, you know, I talked about the CREATE example, yeah. You're spending a lot of time, a lot of your life with these people. They mm-hmm. better be fun to work with. They better be fun to, to, to um, you know be in recreational activities with. Uh, they have to be people you can get along with. And so those are, I think, some of the ingredients which which make for successful teams. So
0: when you're creating this multidisciplinary team and you have people coming in, you've asked or people who've responded to the flyer, Uh, How does that lead PI emerge? Is that something that you select or is it At
1: at the time at which we've got a team assembled, so to speak, for the first time, um, I'm not doing much in the way of selection. I'm gonna encourage people who couldn't make that meeting. Uh, Those of us who schedule meetings know, there's the minute you get to about four or five people, it's like (laughs) almost impossible to find a time when everybody can get together, right? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and so not everybody is going to be there at that first meeting. Some mm. people have expressed an interest and they might show up at the second meeting or something of that sort. So I'll still play a role in trying to encourage people I think might enjoy that opportunity or, or be central to that opportunity. But usually, again, this is more a bottom up type thing. There are people who kind of, I wouldn't say necessarily enjoy, but, but are interested in in assuming a leadership role within a team. And Usually, these are the more mid-career to more senior figures, for the most part, because they have uh, more gravitas when it comes to uh, somebody looking over the grant and saying, "Yeah, I trust a million dollars to this person, or you know, oh. five million dollars to this person, yeah. that type of thing." So they tend to be at least mid-career, often more senior people who often take the lead PI or PD, you know, mm-hmm. uh, role in a in a grant application. But for the most part. The teams I like, we tend to be more like peers, and usually that that kind of grows up organically. Well, I guess I'm going to make a pitch. Okay. And it's a pitch to my my mid-career and more senior faculty. Be open to the possibility of doing something a little out of your area and joining an interdisciplinary team every now and then, because you at that particular stage in your career are already extremely knowledgeable uh, to reach that level. Say you're a, a full professor or something in that area. Uh, to have been that successful, you've demonstrated the ability to master an area in depth and persuade your peers you know, both to publish you and to fund you. And you have a wealth of knowledge that you have an opportunity to pass on to potential teammates particularly the next generation of researchers who hopefully are going to be like you someday. And so although it's really hard to drag yourself out of a research area and learn something new, or at least move to a slightly different area, I want to encourage some of the the senior people, to the extent that they've got the time. And and a lot of this has to do with where you are in in your life space. So when you're junior, you're forming, you know, Your romantic relationships or you're forming a a a family not a lot of of spare time available when you're a junior faculty member in terms of you know your life course mid-career you've got your tenure and your promotion at that point things open up a little bit but i think even at full professor they're a little more open yet and Mm. you know a lot of people at that stage are moving into more administrative roles perhaps as as a as something to explore that's new uh, kind of like what happened to me with the directorship of the Institute for Successful Longevity. But I, I want to push my, my colleagues to think about the the benefits they could bring to teams, particularly as mentors of more junior faculty.
0: So even though these multidisciplinary um, grant proposals are becoming more common, there may be some listeners who are researchers who haven't ever done a, you know, multidisciplinary Effort before, and maybe they're high-level faculty members. Maybe they're assistant professors. What kind of advice would you give to them as they're starting out with a team, or looking for a team, or thinking how can I be the best team member I can be? You know, yeah, that's that's
1: a really interesting question. I, I, I think when you're assembling teams, you're if let's say you're in the role of assembling a team, like like me or something of that sort. I'm looking for people who've got particular unique skill sets that are going to make this grant highly competitive. They bring a methodology, for instance, a technique. It could be a you know, particular piece of equipment if you're talking about the physical sciences that they know how to use that few other people in the world are using at this particular point in time. And so, my advice to junior researchers is, you know, talk to lots of people. You go to scientific meetings. There's an opportunity after, you know, someone gives a a presentation to go up and chat with that person, let them know you're interested in this research topic too, make yourself visible to the people who are likely to be the ones who often initiate those large-scale research projects. And so, yeah, you have to, first of all, be really good in your field. (laughs) 90% of grant applications are rejected. Hmm. This is a this is a pretty tough game we're playing, um, so might you know the funding lines be maybe a ten percent or they dropped even lower than that five percent uh, back uh, during the re- the Great Recession for instance. Or uh, the way I would think about it if I was trying to form a team is, how, what what's the unique angle that we're going to have? What are the particular skill sets that are unique to this team mm-hmm. that's going to bring us over the top and we'll be the one in the hundred, or mm-hmm. or you know one in, in 50 people who are applying for this that will actually get funded. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the strategic perspective that the people who form the teams often take is, uh, we need the very best researcher on X and on Y and on Z and, uh, let, let everybody know you're the world's expert on X or Y or Z, uh, let everybody know that uh, you're reliable. You can be trusted. You've published, uh, in good journals. Uh, you may already have a grant of your own. And so you're the sort of person I want to I look at um, to form a team.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Sure thing. Happy to help.
0: Journeys in Research is a production of the Office of Research Development at Florida State University. To stay up to date with content, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, including show notes for this episode, go to journeysinresearch.podbean.com or visit us on our homepage, ord.fsu.edu. We'd love to hear from you. Please send questions or suggestions for episodes to ord.fsu.edu with the word podcast in the title. Music for this episode by Katza. Special thanks to Mike Mitchell, C.C. Pierre, and our guest, Neil Charnis. I'm Evangeline Coker. Thanks for listening.